Today on The Art Dealer Show, you will hear gallery owner Richard Perry say... So when we would visit uh, Calder at a studio, he would say, well, here's how this is going to work today. If you want to buy some works of art, we have to play some pool first. To play pool? Well, thank God, I was a very good pool player. Welcome to The Art Dealer Show a podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have gallery owner of Centaur Gallery in Las Vegas, Nevada, Richard, dick to his friends, Perry. If you're not familiar with Centaur Gallery, you really only need to know one thing before we get going. Centaur Gallery is perhaps the earliest major street-level gallery in Las Vegas, and it's lasted for literally decades. Richard and I are going to get into some great topics, starting with how being left after his company was shut down with only a couple bucks in his pocket, he followed up on a job lead and wound up being put right smack dab at the center of the universe of what became the street level gallery world. And Richard's going to make a, a case about how it's not just the art galleries have gotten smaller in our business, that it's the artist too, in a way. We are going to get into all of that and much, much more. But for now, let's uh, let's drop on over to the old art dealer bar for a moment. I want to bend your ear. I've got one that I want to run by you. Okay, are you comfortable? Because I hope you're uh, I hope you're ready for a ride. Because what I have on my mind, it's not a small one. It's it's a rather big one. Since the last time you and I met here, I had a really interesting breakfast with a, an artist. He's actually very impressive. It wasn't just me, my uh, partner Daniel, he was there too. Somewhere along the line in our conversation, as we knocked ideas back and forth about how we can position him and better market him, he put on the brakes. He said, Danny, just make me look cool. And that... That rang so clear, and it makes sense. Who doesn't want to look cool? Who is not into something like this to be cool? So I got it, and it started to make me think. It's not just a, a truth in the context of art dealers or the context of artists. More importantly, it's a truth in what collectors want. And if you don't know it already, let me share with you. This is what collectors do indeed want. They want to be cool. And that comes in many different forms. But they want they want to feel when they buy a piece of artwork that that makes them something special. They want to feel when they're in a gallery, they're something special. They want to feel when they're talking to you, the art dealer, that that makes them something cool. And in that realization that that has the answer inside it of what has happened to the art business. And I'm sorry to say what has happened to the art business a long time ago and not a positive thing. I mean, something, something that is faded, maybe even lost. So let's put a pin in that for just a moment. And bear with me just a second as I tell you a story. It's a good story, though. I think you'll like it. The story is about a young, single Jewish woman that came to America in 1924 
from her homeland in Germany. That woman's name is Galka Shire. Coming from Germany, she arrived on our shore with nothing. No friends, no job prospects, no place to really be. She really only had one thing going for her. She came from a family that were art collectors. They had collected a number of pieces, and that is exactly what Gelka brought with her, amongst her few other possessions. And she decided that those few paintings that she brought with her, they would be the seeds that would be the beginning of her career, her life in this new country. The paintings were all done by expressions, and they were done at a time where the name had yet to be used for the school that they would eventually be known for, which is German Modernists. Gilga was an impassioned woman. She really loved these artists. She really loved their paintings. This was something she cared about deeply. Her timing, on the other hand, was horrible. We were just recently out of World War I, and the tolerance for artists from Europe was at an all-time low. In particular, artists that were working in contemporary forms. There was absolutely no acceptance for it in the public or even within the lofty art collecting community. There were no galleries for it, and there was certainly no understanding for it. There wasn't a language for it, mostly because they didn't care. But this didn't slow down guilt. Gilka made a career out of being an educator, out of being a promoter, a speaker. She ran around and gave lectures on these artists. She offered a context for who they were and what they were doing, a way of understanding what was going on with the work. And she didn't just do this for anybody. She worked her way into some of the most savvy and swaying circles of the time. She hung out in, with artists like Weston, who was changing photography for all of the future. She hung out with Diego Rivera. These were the hip of the hip. She was mixing with composers like John Cage and filmmakers. This became her scene. And over time, as she educated, and over time, as she mingled in those circles, she created a brew, a cocktail. She conjured. She created a glow of cool. She started building collectors and their collections. She started getting this written about in the news. People knew that the most sophisticated, of the most hip, of the most cool in society, they were a part of her world. And one of the things that they did was they collected art. And the artists they collected, well, they would become known as the Blue Four. And who are the Blue Four? Yulinsky. Feininger, Kandinsky, Clay. Artists that if it wasn't for this one art dealer may have vanished into obscurity or certainly not become as popular, certainly were not to be as seen as hip as they were seen in this time. And not only was she doing it in a time where the market wasn't initially receptive of this, if you have done your math right, if you know your history and know where we are on the calendar, you know she is doing this only in the midst of the Great Depression. And if you think times are tough now, where times were tough in 2008 or 2009 or whatever it is that we've lived through, try selling art in 1929 or through the 30s. She did. She had a beautiful, 
very modern, cool house built in the Hollywood Hills. She turned that house into her own art gallery. And all of those people in her circles, they would hang out there. She would throw parties, and at those parties, she would introduce them to more and more artists coming out of Europe and continue to educate them. Unfortunately, she died rather early in 1945, but her legacy went on. And she doesn't stand alone in this. She is one of a number of art dealers that came in in the early part of the century that did very similar things to what she did. They made the art business cool. They didn't do exactly, though, what that artist I had breakfast wants us to do. They didn't really exactly make the artist cool. They did something to the survival of this business that was much more important. They made the act of collecting the art cool. And I know I'm using that word a lot. At some point, this bled over to everybody and everything. People in the United States and elsewhere for that matter too, started to know the names of artists in a way that they never knew before. They knew the artists that were writing the razor's edge. They knew who Salvador Dali was. They knew who artists like Jackson Pollock was. They knew de Kooning. They read about these people. They heard about the art galleries and shows and where the biggest names and most important folks of their own times would hang out and mingle. And that the real somebodies, the people of importance, that they would go to those places and they would collect these artists' works. They understood that this was synonymous with fashion and to be fashionable. And at some point, when the Depression went away, when World War II was over, when the baby boom came in, when the suburbs started to grow, when the middle class started to expand, when people started becoming upwardly mobile, where working class folks had a buying power, they were met. They were met with art galleries. Art galleries started to work their way into their communities. No longer was it just in Los Angeles and in New York. It worked its way into the suburbs. You found them in places like Duluth, Omaha, Oakland, California. You found them in places where you wouldn't have expected them ever before, and they were well received. And the great advantage the gallery owners of that time had, what allowed that to work in a way that it would never have worked before, was that that public was already aware of what it was that they were doing. They knew what an art gallery was. They knew who the artists were inside. You did not have to explain to them who Salvador Dali was. You did not have to tell them who Picasso was. And that made the profession, in a way that it never was before, easy. Now, those early art dealers, well, they didn't just ride on that easy. They did the job, but an easier job than it once would have been before. One thing they didn't have to do is they didn't have to define the action of collecting art as being cool. That had already been established. They just had to make sure that the environment supported that. But that over time started to fade. And as there was a lot of money to be made, so brought on those who came for the easy money. 
And over time, the galleries, well, they started to lose focus. They started to not understand what it was that made this work. They didn't get the idea that we were delivering cool. They didn't know how to do it either. Eventually, that led to art becoming commodity. It wasn't so much about what we were going to produce and how we were going to present it, but it became about price. It became about competing with the other gallery. And as there were less art dealers in the world focused on creating that cocktail, if you will, that casts the glow of cool onto what we do, doing the things that Galka and those like her did in her own time. Well, the notion that collecting art is cool, well, that started to fade too. There were less stories about those parties, about those gallery openings in the newspapers. You didn't see artists showing up on the late night television shows like at one point Andy Warhol used to and others. That, that vanished because there was no one in the engine room. There was no one making the cool. That was unhappening. It eventually comes on board, and you know the rest of this future, but I might as well say it right now. Eventually comes things like eBay, Craigslist, and even things, and forgive me for saying it, but like First Bid and Artsy and folks like that. Operations that don't do the job. They don't stir the drink. You know, I had an experience. It was after the death of Leroy Neiman, and I was in a gallery and it was a street-level gallery, and there were a gallery that was rather well-known for Leroy Neiman's artwork. And as I was walking around that gallery, just taking a look at what they had and seeing how they operated, to be quite frank, an art dealer caught my eye, and she yelled from across the gallery. She says, that's, that's the art of Leroy Neiman. He just died. You should buy some. He just died. You should buy some. Cool was dead. Cool has been bled out of this business. Didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen just because of that one crass art dealer who yelled it out. Probably lost her passion for the business God knows how many years ago. Somewhere along the line, we lost touch with what it is we actually do. In the middle, somewhere between the artist and the collector, somewhere between hanging up the art and selling the art, somewhere between bringing on the artist and talking about the artist, somewhere in the middle lies us, lies the art dealer. And we think our profession is about selling. We think our profession is about delivering a good story, and it is. I don't want to contradict my last episodes for sure. That is a big part of our craft, what we do. But we're not simply salespeople. We're manufacturers. We're manufacturers of cool. That doesn't make us cool. God knows that's not true. But we are manufacturers. Because somebody has to be. It's not what artists do. Artists make art. That doesn't make them inherently cool. Collectors collect art. 
that certainly doesn't make it inherently cool. Galleries are just buildings. They're just stores. They're just walls where you hang up paintings. Nothing about that inherently is cool. Not by itself. Not on its own. It has to be manufactured. That's what Galka did. That's what a dozen or maybe even a hundred other great art dealers did at some point. That's what caused all of this to happen. They manufactured cool. And maybe it's been too long. Maybe it's we've lost touch with it. Maybe the knowledge of how to do that has been lost somewhere in the history of our profession. I don't know. But if it has, well, well then we have to figure it out. And if you think this is dire, if you think this is grim, if you think what I am saying is our profession died on the vine long before we got to this moment where I'm recording this conversation here at the old art dealer bar, you're wrong. That is not at all what I'm saying. I'm actually here to tell you that all of this time, ever since those words just make me look cool, started running through my head, started resonating deep with inside me, I got excited. I got fucking giddy is what I got. Because once I figured that out, now I realize what it is that we have to do. Did you know that Jeff Koons got his start by being discovered in the 1980s while standing in his booth at Art Expo? You never heard about that before? You're not aware of it? Well, there's a reason for that. It's a lie. It's a, it's a serious, deep, really pathetic lie. But it is somewhat believable if you think about it. And an art fair, specifically the art fairs put on by Redwood Media Group, the very fundamentals that make such a thing possible can all be found. At a show put on by Redwood Media Group, and there's a couple great ones coming up. We have Art Santa Fe, July 13th through 16th, and we have Art San Diego further on down in the fall from September 28th to October 1st. In their shows, you have artists, you have art dealers, and most certainly have art collectors. It's the cocktail that makes such a bit of magic take place. Sure, Jeff Koons didn't come up that way. I don't even know if he ever went to an art expo, quite frankly, but he should have. If you want to find out more, go to redwoodmg.com. They have details about all their shows and how you can participate yourself. Did you know at one time... Peter Max was an unknown artist who had to work in Times Square as a Salvador Dali lookalike, posing for photographs with tourists coming to New York. And it wasn't until he did a show that was publicized with the help of Alison Zucker Perlman and her company Relevant Communications that he exploded and became the famous artist you know him as today. This, of course, is a lie. It's an actually very bad lie and not a very believable one. But one part is very believable, and that is if he was that person, if he wasn't known, certainly the fine folks at Relevant Communications could have done that job. Relevant Communications is composed by a team of publicist specialists who work specifically in the art gallery world. They represent artists, galleries, and publishers, and they have handled some of the biggest shows. If you want to learn more about Allison Zucker Perlman's company, go on over to relevantcommunications.net. There's a lot of information there waiting for you. You should give her a ring to find out what she can do for you. 
Did I ever tell you about how I got started in this business? After doing a long stretch in Folsom Prison, after a little bank thingy, we don't need to go into the details, I picked up a copy of Art World News. And based upon what I learned just from one copy of Art World News, I was able to go into an interview at a very successful art gallery and land myself an art dealing job that very day. I bluffed my way through. That is actually a lie. I have never done time, at least not that you know about. And I did not use Art World News to help me get my first job in the art business, but I could have. It is plausible. If you look through the pages of Art World News, there is so much there to learn about our business, the people in it, what they do and how they succeed in doing it. Art World News might not have made my career, but if you are doing time right now and you're thinking about becoming an art dealer, pick up a copy. It might help you out. Art World News for everybody in the art business who wants to know what's going on and felons too. My guest today, as I told you at the top of the episode, is gallery owner, owner of Centaur Gallery in Las Vegas, Richard, a.k.a. Dick to his friends, Perry. Now, Richard is not a person who I've been friends with for a very long time. As a matter of fact, during our interview, that was the longest period of time that I've ever had a conversation with him. But besides that, I've known about Richard forever. But that forever is not nearly as long as he has been synonymous with galleries in the city of Las Vegas. His gallery has been there probably since the very beginning of there being galleries in that city at street level off the strip. But you know what? His career didn't even just begin there. Richard started with the folks over at Merrill Chase Gallery. And I like to tell you about how that went or what that represents. But I think Richard did a far better job of it during our conversation. So I'd just rather take you there right now and let him do a better job than I would. This was the employment agency business. We owned a major employment agency business in Chicago with uh, over 200 employment counselors. Mm -hmm. We were uh, successful enough to gather every major corporation uh, who had representation in Chicago and Chicago and New York. And uh, a very good example of that would have been a number of the major magazines that were going into business, including the Playboy Club. I think when I got together with uh, Hugh Hefner and uh, they they wanted to hire uh, somewhere between four and 12,000 new employees for the development of the magazine, for the, the Playboy magazine. Which, so that was that was a real thrilling expense uh, uh, for me when I found out that uh, the president, chief operating officer of the company, decided to take our three or four million bucks and uh, leave the United States and uh, left with the bookkeeper. And uh, they wound up taking uh, everything that I had. And uh, within 90 days, uh, we were shut down by federal regulators who were not able to collect the money that was due them for federal taxes and other taxes. After the Internal Revenue Service took everything I had, <laughs> I mean, every, they left me with one suit, uh-huh. one shirt, one tie, and one old pair of shoes. And they took everything else. What the hell do you do with clothes? Uh, but they took everything I had. All right, but you're at a point now 
where the one major piece of a career experience you have is in the staffing industry, right? That's right, yeah. And yet you didn't go to work for another staffing company. No. Because you were done with staffing after that experience? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at the idea. I had a little interest in art, not very much. Yeah. Uh, I dabbled in it as a young guy. I did some painting and some drawing, and I was, I was pretty good at it. And I thought maybe this might be something interesting for me to look into. Uh, I had an interview with a very small company at the time. They had one little art gallery business, and they were looking for some expansion. That art gallery business was in Oakbrook, Illinois. Uh, which had just completed a major shopping center that was built there. And we had a uh, literally a 1,500 square foot space upstairs and downstairs, 3,000 square feet, and the opportunity to extend that business. And they brought me in to go through a sales training program, which was laughable. They didn't know very much about sales training. but How long have they been around? Two or three years before I joined the company. Uh-huh. And I had to teach them how to do the interviewing. And I moved up the ranks pretty quickly. So is it just that you knew more about how to run a business than right. they did? Yeah. Right. I, I was vice president of the company at the end of three years. So, <laughs> 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 you know, and all of a sudden we've got, uh, we've got three or four locations. And by the time I got done with it, we had 12 locations, uh, 250 salespeople, 50 people in the administrative department. We built a 45,000 square foot uh, headquarters. And uh, we were the champs of the world in the art gallery business. I mean, there, there wasn't anybody that was bigger than we were, smarter than we were. And we were smart enough to gain access to the biggest names in art. We got very friendly with Picasso and the family. So what you're describing is the beginnings of, of Merrill Chase. Yes. Where did they come from, though, since they only been in the business for a few years? Well, Merrill Chase originally uh, was a very well-known photographer and operated a major photographic business uh, in Chicago for people who wanted their wedding pictures taken, uh, beautifully done, uh, wanted the graduation pictures. They were, in the, they were in the photo business. And uh, that business was moderately successful, but there was a lot of competition coming in for it. And Mr. Merrill Chase, the old man who really started the business along with his son, did a little art collecting along, along the way. And while he did so, uh, he did a lot of examination about the art gallery business and eventually said this might be a better business than being in the photographic uh, uh, business itself. And he opened a little art gallery business first in Oak Brook, Illinois. And we began to expand that business by hiring people. And I was one of the first uh, new members of the staff to be hired. I think they hired at the time eight new people to help them expand the business. I don't know anything about selling art at the time, but I knew sales quite well, and I, I knew how to deal with people and, you know, like that eye-to-eye thing and, and, and sit down and, and express uh, the sales presentation material that they felt they needed to know more about to begin collecting art. What we did, literally, was we started dozens and then multiple dozens and then hundreds of people this whole conceptual idea of collecting art. So they came back to us often, time and time and again. Mm-hmm. I want to get a Picasso first. Then I want to get something by Chagall. Then I want to get something by Miro. Then I want to get something by Calder. All the big names. And at that time, all these big names were still alive. And we were in touch with all of these big mm-hmm. names. So we had access, literally, 
to every big name in our. We used to play pool with Calder when we go to New York. Yeah, but that's a big move when you have the well, successful you, as they were. These people that just came out of the photography business. Now all of a sudden, calling up people like Picasso and Calder, and right. you know, and and it's not like there aren't other big players in the art business at this point. And there were times we didn't know what we were talking about. We're, 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 trying, we're trying to read every book, every catalog, every biography as fast as we can. We can't absorb this material fast enough. Is it one of those examples where, because I've had it in my own career, where you're just too dumb to know you shouldn't be making that phone call, right. that you don't get to do that, but, right. but yet someone picked up the phone and there you are? Yeah, yeah. that's it. <laughs> so in any event, uh, we continue to grow the business and grow the business and grow the business. And but I'm going to throw I, you back just a minute. Sorry to cut you off here, but sure. I think I missed a part here. Did you make a conscious decision that you wanted to get into the art business when you went to those guys? Or is that just something that kind of... I, I went there to try it out. But did you, was there one day you, that you said, I'm going to go look for an art gallery to work no, with? So no. how did you wind up being introduced to they the had an ad in the first in the news, place? They had an ad in the newspaper. An ad in the newspaper. I saw the ad and I said, you know, I think I'll go out there for now. But, but, 40 you know, years I, later, right? I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get out there. I didn't have a car. You got to remember that before I began to interview anybody, the Internal Revenue Service took everything I had. I had, I had three cars. I had two residents. They left me with one suit. They left me with one shirt and one tie and one pair of shoes and no socks. <laughs> I had to go out and buy socks. God bless it. I had enough money to buy a pair of socks. Right, so I had so socks. Here you are, recently sockless, penniless. You got an ad in the paper. Absolutely. Probably picked it up and didn't buy it. You go out to these guys who are just starting up their business based upon coming from the photography business. Right. Who don't really know what they're doing yet. Right. Okay. I didn't know what I was doing either. And then you bring them a little bit of institutional business smarts. Absolutely. Okay. And now here we are just a couple years later. You're the vice president of the company, you said? Three years, four years later. And you have 4,500 employees, was it? No. No. Oh, is it? 400. 400. Okay. Four, you have 400, 400 employees? employees. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. So we're there. We're a few years in. You're building up that foundation. Right. Uh, it must have been exploding. I mean, here, you know, you're, it, you're it, working with the biggest names in the art, not just then, but in art history, period. Right. And we were, and we were very friendly with everybody in, in, in the trade. I mean, we were like buddy, buddy with, you know, we would go to New York to visit Alexander Calder, one of the great names in art. He loved the idea of having uh, art dealers come and visit him. So when we would visit, uh, called her at a studio. He would say, well, here's how this is going to work today. If you want to buy some works of art, we have to play some pool first. To play pool? Well, thank God, I was a very good pool player at the time. Uh huh. <laughs> and we would literally sit down and wait for him to get the door open. <laughs> a special little room with a key in it. Got a big, beautiful billiard table in there, pool table in there. And we would literally play pool for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes. He'd say, all right, let's go look at some art. <laughs> 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes, that was it. we go look at some art, all right? And we go look at some art. We said, we would buy this, we would buy that, we would buy this, we would buy that. And he'd say, how are you going to pay long term? That's how we're going to pay. Uh-huh. And he would say, why? I said, because we're in the process of developing and building the company. We don't want to take out build-out money. What we want to do is get started with major artists and pay them over a period of time. But he's got people like Peggy Guggenheim buying artwork off of him at this point. Uh, Peggy, Peggy came a little later. I, I oh, yeah? Think. Okay. Yes, a little later. Not much later, but a little later. Because I'm figuring, here you are saying you're going to buy it over time and you're competing with 
crazy millionaire yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, but he loved this idea of being in some place outside of New York. You know, I mean, this is New York and New York and New York, and that's the end of it. Apart from that, uh, it's kind of been there, done that. Been there, done that, and yeah. he loves the idea of Chicago. You know, and, and these guys are are growing and developing and adding more art gallery businesses. I mean, other galleries that came along, very small ones in San Francisco and Los Angeles, uh, didn't have either the gumption or the money or the desire to get on a plane and fly to New York and spend some time with, with uh, you know, it, it just, it was a miracle for us. But we had so many miracles going on. We had the same relationship with the Renoir family. We had the same relationship with every major family out there. And some of these artists were, were, were still alive at the time we, we were buying and, and getting, getting very deeply involved with these people. So we were at the top of our game with everything that we did, and it, and it became an extraordinary operation. The result of what we were doing simply was that we made the decision to try and find another city where we could duplicate the successes we had in Chicago. And our first city that we looked at was Los Angeles, California. We sent one of our uh, executives out there to look at an operation that was for sale. And he went out there and looked at an operation that was for sale. And he bought it for himself. <laughs> <laughs> Left the company, <laughs> bought it for himself. And uh, we made the decision that, well, we're not going to go that far uh, any longer. And we finally came to the conclusion that we would like to be a little bit closer to Chicago. The, the, and this is what year we're talking about now. This would have been uh, 1979, 80, and 81, those okay. three years, uh, because we signed a lease in 1979 for a building that hadn't even been built yet. That was the Fashion Show Mall. A uh, major, major build-out in, in that. Uh, and this that, is a big deal, because if I'm not mistaken... There are no galleries that are expanding themselves at all in the business None. until Zero. this point. None. There aren't multiple locations None. or reaching outside of your territory. Yeah. None. None, but we had the employees. Right. You know, we had the training program. We had, uh, by that time, uh, all the major acquaintances with the major artists uh, who were alive at that time. Uh, we were very friendly with every, even the artists who were no longer alive, we got friendly with the estates. We were very friendly with the Renoir estate. And we were very friendly with the distributors of those estates who were still alive and, and now in their 70s and 80s that gave us access to material mm -hmm. that literally hadn't been looked at in 15 or 20 or 30 years. What, a, what, what wound up occurring was that we wound up being one of the largest art gallery businesses anywhere in the world. And when I say largest, I mean by revenues, by volume. Yeah. Literally, you're doing a multi, multi-million dollar revenue business. You know, you're doing 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year. This is this is which, 35 and 40 year old money, right. which is unheard you can, of. You can multiply that by four or five times to come by up with five a figure. times. You're looking at a hundred yeah. million dollars a year, right? So which we had collectively no one gallery has probably ever seen at this point. No, yeah, no, nothing like it. Mm -hmm. Nothing like it. There were a few smaller galleries in New York, and there was a couple of small galleries uh, in Chicago. Uh, uh, even the major auction houses were pretty tiny at that time. Sotheby's, Christie's, everybody, they were not that big. Yeah, so you think of the biggest art dealers, the Leo Castellis, you know, yeah. they're not seeing money like this. No. No, not even close. Yeah. Not even close. You know, we became uh, literally the largest, most successful art gallery business anywhere in America. And uh, at, at that point, you know, a few things happened that changed our business. Number one, 
uh, one of the founders of our business, Mr. Merrill Chase, passed away. And he passed away at the age of, uh, oh, I don't know, 80s. And this is also in the early 80s we're still talking about? Yeah. Okay. And uh, this, his son, Bob Chase, who was my counterpartner and, um, you know, my, my mentor and uh, still president of the company. I was vice president of the company. Uh, You're about you know, the same age as Bob? We are two years apart. Okay. And uh, Bob was working on a major project uh, that I placed into his hands almost by accident. We came across an artist uh, who was uh, very interested in becoming very famous. And we made the decision to become uh, his mentor and uh, help him along. By the time uh, we were fully invested uh, uh, with his product, uh, with his art, we had major pieces that were in the Vatican. We had major pieces that were in uh, major retail and wholesale organizations. Uh, we were now selling major sculptures uh, by this artist in the quarter of a million to three and four and five hundred thousand dollar range, which was unheard of at the time. His name was Frederick Hart. Oh, so was this the first program artist that you pick up at the time? No, it wasn't. Okay, but but we had other program artists that had did not have either the ability, the wherewithal, uh, or the desire, literally, to become world famous. Uh-huh. Literally. Well, this is a big turn too, right? I mean, I don't know exactly where Huge. on the map to point to it, but. We had made programs in our industry based upon artists that had been famous for decades Absolutely. already. You know, Picasso, they built, turned into a program, and artists like that. But to take an artist that had yet to become specifically world-renowned and say, we're going to make that happen, would you say that's about the, what, what the point we are in history at this? Let, let me capitalize a little bit on it, because okay. what, 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 my, what my boss said, Bob Chase said, he says, you got to go find this guy. I said, Say that one more time. He says, you've got to find him. I said, how would I go find him? He's somewhere around Washington, D.C. So get a plane ticket, uh, uh, get on a plane, go down to Washington, uh, and start uh, looking around to see where he is. And and I physically said to myself, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. They don't know where he is. They're not even sure what he looks like. They have no idea why he's there. This just went on and on and on and on. I, I I flew to Washington, D.C., and I started to walk around uh, the city. I started to ask cab drivers. I started to ask people uh, who were involved in the arts community if they ever heard of this guy. And they said, oh, wait a second. This is a guy who just applied for a, a, a major uh, opportunity to do something with one of the major organizations uh, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, no one is giving me names. But someone finally told me that we 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 understand that he's living in a, a little what do you call those things that you drive behind your car, at like the, a what, like a camper or camper uh-huh. uh huh behind one of the buildings. So I'm in a cab running around uh, almost every major building in Washington D.C. looking for a camper, and behind one of these buildings there is a camper. And I got out of the cab, and I'm knocking on the door, pounding on the door, and there's some big giant dog, you know, be- beating his his his, uh, d- his door down, uh, looking like he's going to come after me in the throat. Finally, this guy comes out, and I said, are you Frederick Hart? He said, I am. Why are you looking for me? Do I owe you money? I said, no, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I represent a major art organization that might be interested in helping you along with your career. 
And that's how we got started with Rick Hart. So what kind of offer would it be? So if the guy's living in a camper, are you writing him a check right there and then for some, you know, to get him on board? or we did, we did a whole series of things. First, we had to let him finish the work that he uh, literally might get this major deal from. And he said, when that's over, he said, I, I, can, I can do a contract with you. Which is perfect for you anyway, because, of course, this absolutely. is going to be the thing that you're going to tell everybody about yeah, when you yeah, launch it. This artist him. is right. going to be in our hands. Yeah. So it, Just it took, finishing it took his big about, national commission. It took us about three or four months to get a contract put together that he and his lawyer, yeah. who was uh, operating for free, uh, sign a contract with us to begin to do uh, artwork for us. And we literally were, 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 we, we waited for about two and a half years him to complete all of the artwork that went into that building. And we finally began to produce uh, uh, some sculpture with him. He was the first artist to come along with the idea of using uh, clear plexiglass, you know, to, to produce sculpture. We wound up uh, doing monumental projects with this guy that were unreal. We just had so many projects going on with him, we couldn't keep it up. And something terrible happened when he finished that, that series of sculptures for the Vietnam veterans uh, that's in Washington, D.C. He had a minor heart attack. And uh, he just simply came to the conclusion that he would not have any major operations on his body. And he just refused. I will not do that, period. And he's not gonna, They're not going to open me up. They're not going to cut me open. That's when people die when they cut you open. Forget it. I'm not doing it. And he, he finally got well from uh, just taking it easy uh-huh. and getting some attention from a doctor and taking some drugs and so forth and so on. And, and we had some very major projects that uh, we did with him for the next two or three years. And just a few years went by and uh, he finally called one day and said, uh, I'm not going to make it beyond the next few days. And he said goodbye and passed away a few days later. It was tragic for us. Wow. You know, he refused to, to, to literally go through major operations and being cut open and all the rest of that stuff. And not to be cold hearted about it, forgive the pun on that. You got to have a real emotional split, too. I mean, oh. Obviously, you're working closely to someone. You had a, probably a deep relationship this with is, them. This is, this losing this a is, friend this is, this or a family tragic, member. Tragic thing. Right. But in the same time, you're now also recouping the business aspect of it, yeah. too. Yeah, all of a sudden there was an enormous amount of demand, you know, for the artwork. We just finished the staff of the Pope huh. at the time. I think that I think the popes that survived after that Pope still have that staff and walk around with it occasionally. And all of a sudden, these sculptures that we used to sell for, you know, fifteen, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand bucks for these big giant ones are a quarter of a million, half million dollars a piece. You can't find much material out there anymore. You don't see a lot of artists like Frederick Hart coming on the scene in general in the galleries anymore. With those kind of credentials being that kind of a phenomenon for the gallery business. Rare. Enormously rare. Do you think that's a reflection of just the luck of the moment of having that happen, or is that more of the times? It's a, it's almost a spiritually re- highly regarded uh, accident of time. Yeah. I've heard that from a couple of people. Calder used to say that once in a while. Accident of time? Yeah, it's an accident of time. <laughs> accident. Sandy, what are you talking about? It's, it's an, an accident. accident. It's an accident of time, but we try to make business models based <laughs> upon those accidents happening. Oh. <laughs> All right, so you're out there. At this point, and let's put, again, this in context, Merrill Chase Gallery, 
it's the beginning of something big. There are so many people in our business today and, you know, over the past decades that trace their roots back to that one place. I got the bad news for you. Got, about 25% of them are now dead because uh, I've been in touch with some of them. Who yeah, all, there's a little bit of that all too. All passed away of, in the last, uh, you know, three, four, five, six years. That's some very good people. But those people went on to train other people. Some of them you know, did. That DNA got passed along Some a little bit. Some of them did, yeah. You think it's dying off? I don't know. I don't look at it in those terms. I, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm not a deep reflector of, you know, last year and five years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. I live it today and tomorrow and the next day, and after that, uh, I wait till I get there. Do you think that's the key to success? I think that's the key to living longer. <laughs> 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 I, you, you know... Um, there are a lot of really good people in our business that, that are no longer in our business because they passed away fairly early in their 50s or 60s. And I'm going on 76, and I'm still fairly healthy. I don't work as hard as I used to, but I've got some interesting hobbies. I do some things that are uh, occasionally frightening. I do some deep sea fishing once in a while. And, uh, you know, when you got a 2,000-pound fish at the other end of the line and the He's very interested in killing you before he right. gets brought into the boat. And it's a little hairy and a little scary, but I still do some of that. And I've, I've been to some parts of the world for some fishing that uh, no white man has been in ever. And I came back a couple of times pretty sick and wound up in a hospital from some disease that uh, they never heard of before. And they just got to find a way to make sure that I don't drop dead. The uh do you think I'd be pushing it by identifying a correlation between liking fishing at the level that you do and being in the art business? I don't know. Being that it has a little bit of fishing in it too? Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. yeah it, it's, uh, Not to mention the appetite for the big game? Yeah, the big game, the big fish, the uh-huh. big guys. I, I don't know about anybody else in our business, but we still enjoy looking for material by the same artist that we represented 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Picasso, Chagall, Miro, Dolly, all the big names that are out there. And, you know, with some of these guys, Dolly, we had a very close relationship with Dolly. We did two major uh, projects with Dolly, uh, uh, you know, 10-piece portfolios, 12-piece portfolios. Uh, we did the same thing, uh, you know, with some of the other artists that we represented that are no longer around. Some names I can't use for uh, legal reasons. We, you know, what, what we find is that we're doing the same thing that we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. The only difference today is the pricing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the only other difference today is finding the material that used to be readily available that's not so readily available anymore. We have things out here that, you know, you could spend two, three, four years looking for and not turn up a single set. So you're saying, though, you're staying on the same artist, though. Why same artist. Why aren't any artists being added? Because there aren't any artists being added that are good enough to be added to that group. There are not. They're not there. Is that, again, the accident of time? It could be the accident of time. It could be financial. It could be any number of reasons out there. I I think a a great part of it, literally, uh, are major American dealers who are worthy of continuing to capture the uh, public's attention by representing these major artists from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. They're not doing much of that anymore. They're going after this new art that you look at and say, what the hell is it? And what does it mean? And why is 
would anybody spend fifty or hundred thousand dollars for this thing that uh, is nothing more than an abstracted uh, representative of some color? This is, doesn't make any sense to me. But I look so, at it differently than how most other people would look at it. There are a lot of people in our business that have no objection in representing this non-readable, non-understandable form of art that comes out and is given a classification and a name and, and blesses it and says, you, Mr. Jones, my big art collector, you should have two or three or four of these. And I look at him and say that he should have three or four of those in the garbage can rather than in his home. This is junk. It's junk. So what's a big change, though? Is it, I mean, you, at one point you were saying that you don't think the art dealers are there anymore to represent right. the more classic art, whether it's being made now or in the past, I would assume, too. Right. Even right. if a Picasso came around or right. an Ali came right. around right now. Right. Is it that it just became easier to represent art like that, you think? Or you think that art dealers have lost connection with, you know, the skills and muscle that they used to have? Or... I think the latter is is partially very true that they've lost the skills and the understanding of uh, being able to find uh, material from the previous periods that mm -hmm. were very singularly important periods, not only in the development of mankind, but in the development of, of knowledge, in the development of the art community, and the development of ideas that represent how we've lived in this on this planet for the last uh, thousand or two thousand or five hundred or two hundred or fifty years ago. Uh -huh. There's very little attention being given to it. A lot of the material that comes to the market, I see it on my computer literally every week. I look at it and I say, what the hell is this? Yep, if you haven't guessed it, once again, it was a conversation too good to cut short too early. This is going to be a two-parter, and the second part is entirely different than the first part. This was just the foundation of what Richard Perry had to talk about during our conversation at his gallery in Las Vegas. And I'll give you a little tease. The next part has to do with how a chance encounter with Howard Hughes himself led to him opening one of the first galleries right off the strip in Las Vegas. If that doesn't entice you, I don't know what will. But for now, I want to thank Richard. I want to thank him for his time, and I certainly want to thank his staff. And since I'm throwing out the thank yous, I want to thank some of you. Since the last time we all got together, there's been a whole lot of other reviews put up on iTunes, and but I want to call some of these people out. Because not only have they given reviews and they've given great star ratings, they've written some really wonderful notes. Unfortunately, they don't always give their names. They use their iTunes handles. The first one is from Slow Eye. Great interviews, he writes. That's the headline. The well-crafted podcast opens a tasteful window onto a business that I still find to this day enigmatic. After a decade and a half, as a working artist... This podcast increases my respect for the galleries that I work with. Here's hoping these interviews is the oil that makes this business run a little bit smoother. Thank you very much, Slow Eyes. Next, we have I Dedenko. The headline is, it is a one-of-a-kind podcast, exclamation mark. 
Thank you so much for the interviews, ideas, thoughts, and inspiration. I am running my own online gallery, and the information you share is priceless. It is not only knowledge, it's motivation. Hearing so many life stories from other art dealers is like a friend's hug. Thank you. And thank you, Ididenko. This next one came from somebody who actually first sent me an email, but this is the review that she put on over at iTunes. And because of the email, I actually know her name. Holly Hendrickson. And the headline of the review is, Great Podcast. Thank you for the wonderful podcast. I've been selling art for three years now. In your most recent interview, you describe art selling as a craft, requiring continuous improvement, and I identify with that completely. When you speak about the young people who are hungry for knowledge in our profession, you are talking about me. We are listening! Exclamation mark. We are looking to the veterans, those who have made their career and life in this business, to share their techniques and advise with their best answers to the hard questions. Please keep them coming. Thank you. There are a lot more, and uh, if you haven't heard me read yours yet, and no, that's just because I'll be getting to them in future episodes. But in the meanwhile, once again, thank you very much for placing them. And if you're looking for a way to show your support for this podcast, it's simple. You can do like them. You can go over to iTunes and leave a review, even leave a comment. But more importantly, go to iTunes, either on your phone or on your computer if you can, and subscribe to the show. Now, I know a lot of you use other ways to hear the podcast, but when you subscribe specifically in iTunes, that is an indication to them, being the big granddaddy of all podcasting, that the show is being well-received. It's a way of giving a real vote. And if you could do that, then I'd be very appreciative. So until next time, may the coconuts fall at your feet. Good night, my fellow art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find us online at artdealer.show. You can also find us at all the cool and hip social media locations under the same handle of Art Dealer Show. 